This is episode 90. Kate Courtney is the mountain bike world champion. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. For me, the biggest pressure I have is the pressure I put on myself, and that's something that as an athlete, I've had to look at and work through and think about and think about the ways that it's positive. Remember why you're doing it and be grateful for the opportunity and to be grateful that you just get to go out and go as hard as you can go. And I think at the end of the day, taking it one little tiny step at a time and enjoying as much as you can that part of the process helps alleviate some of the negative sides of that pressure. I'm so excited that you guys are here and that you are sharing your attention and your ears with us today. Things have been going awesome with this podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening, and thanks so much for the reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts that helps so much, and also for sharing the show with your friends. It's always really cool whenever I open up my Instagram or my Twitter and I see that somebody has shared their favorite episode or the current episode they're listening to of my podcast. Big thanks and shout out also to those of you supporting my work financially on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And Patreon's a site where you can crowdfund, you can raise even a couple bucks a month per person to help the growth of your project. And in this case, this podcast. Something really fun that I've been doing is in advance posting about who my guests are and who I'm going to be recording with and giving my Patreon people the opportunity to ask personally a question to the guest. And you'll hear in this episode, there are a couple questions where the people from Patreon ask the question, their name was mentioned, and their question, and Kate answers it. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney Show, and you can find that linked up in the show notes. So let's get into today's guest, Kate Courtney. So Kate Courtney was actually on this podcast before, and you should definitely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already, because It's about her mindset and her approach going into the 2018 mountain bike World Cup season as a first-time elite rider. She was previously dominating the U23, the under-23 category, and 2018 was her first year racing the big show. I absolutely love Kate Courtney's mantra, and I'm a huge fan of her. I think she's a really rad person. Her mantra is, work hard, do what you love, and believe anything is possible. And man, she definitely lives that mantra. Many people are inspired by Kate's work ethic, her positive attitude and smile, and ability to perform consistently at the world's highest level in mountain biking. Coming up, dominating the U23 category on the World Cup circuit, 2018 was her first year racing in the Elite XCO category. Kate was immediately racing in the top 10 with her sights set on the podium. She was already doing awesome at the beginning of the year. She says, persistence pays off and eventually it will all come together. And come together it did on the most important day of the year in the world championships. Kate was crowned world champion and got her rainbow stripe jersey at her very first elite worlds. One of the reasons I'm a huge fan of Kate is that she is humble, approachable, and down to earth. Her win inspired many, showing that if you put in the work, you can get to the top, even if you have never been there before. We talk about a lot of fun things in this episode, including Kate's preparation and race plan for the world championships, how to deal with pressure, 
her details about her equipment, pacing, and nutrition for World Cups because that can really vary across different distances. And I was personally interested in hearing about that. How Kate manages expectations, her favorite gym exercise. And as we see in her Instagram stories on her Instagram, which is Kate plus fate, you see that she's in the gym a lot and crushing it. Also, we talk about why her Instagram name is Kate plus fate. Kate Courtney's move to Scott SRAM mountain bike team. So she was previously racing for Specialized, and for this year, she's on the Scott SRAM mountain bike team. And what Sharks and Kate have in common. One last thing before we get into it is I wanted to invite all of you to the Plant Power Tribe on Facebook. It's my free Facebook group, Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. You don't have to be a vegan and you don't have to eat plant-based. You just have to be plant curious and want to eat healthier foods and adopt healthier lifestyle habits. And that's all people are posting about in there. It's great because having the support and having people around you that are doing the same things are people that you can bounce ideas off of if maybe something isn't going well, or maybe if you want to share a success, it's a great spot. So it's a plant power tribe on Facebook and we'll see you there. I'm also almost done with my plant power tribe e-cookbook, and that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks. My deadline for myself is March 1st, but it looks like I'm going to be ahead of schedule with that. And you can pre-order it on the Moxie and Grit website. That's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T.com. And I'm offering a special price for the e-cookbook for people who pre-order, and it's $9.99. There is more than 15 recipes in there, and I'm really proud of it. So if you want to check it out, go to moxieandgrit.com, and you can find the Plant Power Tribe e-cookbook on there as well. Okay, here is the amazing Kate Courtney. I love this episode. I love talking to her, and I think that you're going to really enjoy listening to it. Welcome back to the show, Miss World Champion. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. It's so fun to chat again because last time we chatted, you were about to start your first season on the elite scene in World Cup, and now we're talking and you are the world champion. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to look back on that last conversation. (laughs) Yeah, like it's, it's a really broad question, but like what is the most important thing you've learned over the last year? Ooh, that's a really good question. You're right off the bat with those zingers. Um, (laughs) I think for me, one of the biggest things that I think I really solidified this year was the idea of just chasing that incremental progress and that there's always something to be learned and improved. And you never know when it might all come together and you might be just one step away from achieving something really great. So at Worlds, of course, like I had the opportunity to take that step to take the lead and to have that amazing ride. But it was only possible because of all the incremental steps, some really positive moments of progress where, you know, I learned something new or got better at technical skill or up my power numbers, but also like those really tough moments where I had near misses or came close and didn't have a great race or, you know, was exhausted and felt like it overtrained, like all those moments came together to make that possible. And I think it's just really motivating to see all of that work go towards something. And it makes you want to do it all over again and really focus on each of those little steps and go back to kind of making the blueprint for the season. Yeah. And I definitely want to ask you a lot of questions about the world championship race itself, but leading into it, you know, I, I think it's interesting because a lot of times people think, Oh wow, they just all of a sudden won this race when really like all season you're kind of knocking on the door, like you're doing awesome in the short tracks and really like you really had a lot of focus 
incredible focus and work ethic. And I'm just saying this by watching you on Instagram. How did that play out for you? Because like you said, there's good races and bad races. So how did you deal with like the mental aspect of when things weren't going well? No, it was a huge season of ups and downs for me. And it's really easy to remember just the highlight at the end. But I'm really proud of my consistent results last year and and fighting for those top 10 results at every race. And I think I learned something really amazing at each one. I think two moments stand out in my kind of second half of the season. One was having a knee injury in June and having two weeks off the bike. So that's something I've talked about a lot and I think was an incredible learning experience, but also a really difficult moment where I didn't know what was going to happen for the rest of the season when you are a week away from a world cup and haven't ridden your bike in two weeks, that's a pretty critical situation. And, and I didn't know how that would impact my fitness for the rest of the season. And the second moment was actually Mont St. Anne. And I think the people who are, who have asked me like, Oh, did you change all of your training for worlds? Were you way stronger at worlds? I kind of look at Mont St. Anne and I think that was my second strongest race of the season. And I, I really prepared well for that race and was riding in, I think third place going to the last lap and then had a flat and then I crashed twice and then I lost the sprint finish and got six. So I was one spot off like inches away from my first world cup podium. And that just was like a real dagger to the heart. But I remember saying after that, like in my deep emotional, like post race moment, the first thing I said was like, diamonds are forged in the rough and like, I'm going to make something shiny out of this season is what I said, like, right after. And I think that moment for me, it shows like, every one of those little kind of learning experiences was motivating and challenging, but also was a really important step towards that success at Worlds. Yeah. And I think that like that moment where you're you're like in your low moment, and you still are really positive about what was coming. I think it's really hard to do that. Some people might say, oh, well, I'm just not cut out for this or I'm never going to make it or have that negative talk. So I know that it's a learned thing. So how did you learn how to do that? Because it's hard to actually execute in that lowest moment. Oh, completely. Yeah, I know we talked about like the mental side of racing a little bit in our last chat. And that's something that's really important to me. And of course, I know. I've mentioned I work with a sports psychologist and I meditate and I I do all these things to kind of work on my mental resilience. But at that point in the season, for me, honestly, I think it comes down to trust and a belief in the process. And for me, you know, I have an amazing coach, Jim Miller, and I can talk to him and know, okay, we're in the right place. Did I come up short in this race because of something I did wrong in training or preparation? Or was it bad luck or did I need to fight a little harder or did I just have a bad day? Like you kind of go through what happened. And at the end of the day, what we came away with was no, I was really strong. I just, it didn't come together that day. But if you show up 100% prepared every time you will miss, but you won't miss every time. And so that was kind of my philosophy of like, you're not going to succeed every time you race your bike. It just isn't in the car. It's like, Maybe some people do, and, and there have been perfect seasons, like Nino Scherter's, but uh, <laughs> but it's really hard to do, and it's hard to do for a reason, because not everything is in your control. And I think coming back to, like, what can I control, what can I do well, and executing that, and knowing that if you're persistent, you know, it, you won't have bad luck every single time. So that's what really helped me on that day, but I know mental strategy is 
can change throughout the season too. Yeah. And I mean, early in the season, you started training a lot because you did the Cape Epic with Annika. And how did you deal with the commitment to the hard work? Because it's not always easy, even when you're a professional athlete, even when that's your only job. And, and most times it's not our only job. There's a lot of other commitments that we have. How do you stay committed to that? Because there are days where you just don't want to do it. Oh, Absolutely. And that's something that is always hard because if I'm doing my job as well as I can, I'm pushing myself to the limit. And I always come back to that. Like my job is really to make it so that on my rest day, like today, I basically can't move. Uh, (laughs) So that means I did my job really well the last few days. But yeah, it takes a, a lot of commitment. And I think the Cape Epic was one of the biggest things that I've taken on personally and, and in my career so far. But it also works really well for me. So I think that was a way to sneak in a lot of endurance training for me. And it was a huge year of laying the foundation and trying to catch up in terms of that volume and and big kind of endurance training that a lot of the elite women have been doing for years and years. But we did so with a twist. So I wasn't just thinking about World Cups all winter and, and putting all this pressure on myself for my first year elite. I truly was training all winter saying, man, I hope I survive the Cape Epic. And that was a really motivating goal for me. And it made me want to get up and get out. And And I had many days where I was so tired and I had another five-hour day. And I would say, okay, well, in the Cape Epic, you're going to have to do this. And you don't want to die in the South African wilderness. So you're, <laughs> you're going to have to ride your bike. So for me, it's sometimes picking something that's a little outside your comfort zone. It's new. It's hard. But it's not the same mental pressure or challenge of, okay, I really want to be strong for the World Cups, which, of course, two birds, one stone. That was always, obviously, the long-term goal. But having that Cape Epic to really motivate me in a different way, take some pressure off, and have at least a funny way to motivate myself for survival (laughs) made it a really good first half of the season. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure to perform, especially at the top level. And I actually post about who my upcoming guests are. So people have the option to ask a question. So I have a couple questions from a couple people. Yeah. So it's along the lines of pressure. So a gal named Ali Lacroix asks, does the pressure to perform ever take away from the enjoyment you get from competing? And I think that's an awesome question. That's a fantastic question. I think For me, the biggest pressure I have is the pressure I put on myself. And that's something that as an athlete, I've had to look at and work through and think about and think about the ways that it's positive. Because, you know, I do get really nervous for World Cup races. And it's because I spend so much of my life preparing for them and I care so much about them. And it's something that's really important to me. But it also can be detrimental to performance. So I think for me, recognizing pressure for what it is. I think from other people, that's different. And you can find ways to navigate that. And I think being surrounded by a really good team in terms of both my team support this year, but also my family and my mechanic and my boyfriend, they all understand that no one can make me want to win more than I want to win. And that the best thing they can do is just support me. So the external pressure for me, I think has is less apparent, but that drive to succeed can be really difficult to deal with and grapple with around racing. But I would say my biggest like way to combat that is to remember why you're doing it and be grateful for the opportunity and to be grateful that you just get to go out and go as hard as you can go. And I think 
at the end of the day, taking it one little tiny step at a time and enjoying as much as you can that part of the process helps alleviate some of the negative sides of that pressure. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to be on the front row of a World Cup, especially your your first year in the elite category. How were you received by the other women? And how did you, whenever you were starting these races, like kind of get over the imposter syndrome? And maybe you didn't have it at all, but like, how did you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's definitely a nerve wracking place to be lining up for a World Cup and especially with the current women's field, which is just so competitive. It's not one person you're focused on. There's 10 women that are so strong and and really competitive. And that's a different mindset. I think for me, it came down to really just focusing on myself. And I think as an athlete, as I've evolved, like I'm an incredibly competitive person. But I think what really drives me is being competitive against myself and wanting to see what I'm capable of achieving. So focusing on that element of it and not on like, okay, this girl or that girl or what's this person doing has helped me understand like how I can achieve peak performance. But I think there is a huge level of like imposter syndrome, just starting out in that field and wanting to prove yourself. And I think it, it took a full season. I think at the beginning of the year, I thought it was going to be easier than it was. And then I had a rude awakening in South Africa Um, and then I kind of just started working my way up and really learning to battle and fight for every single position that you can earn out there. So it was more competitive than the U23 because there was way more women who could win on any given day. Absolutely. And it's just faster. I think that's a big thing. And a lot of it comes down to like the first few laps are way faster. And so It's being able to handle that start and handle that pressure and and so many women vying for position. And also another huge difference is the gaps in the top 10. Like in a lot of my races, it was 10 seconds, five seconds separating, you know, a whole group of people. And that's a very different mental and physical challenge than U23 races. I think typically for me, at least like we'd go out, it splits up everyone kind of blows up individually, but the time (laughs) gaps are huge. So (laughs) you're like, everyone's kind of suffering on their own and you're trying not to get caught and trying to catch the person in front of you, but there's big gaps. You're not going into the last lap saying I'm in sixth, but I could get fourth if I went a little faster. (laughs) So how did you change your training to accommodate those first blazingly fast laps? Yeah, I think honestly, One of the positive things about last year is I think we just layered on to the year before. I started working with Jim. This will be my third season working with him. And I think we had great success that first year and and really developed like a longer term plan of how we're going to develop the different sides of my skill set as an athlete. And we really stuck to it and it's worked really well for me. So I haven't necessarily like hugely changed any part of it. I think we did definitely do some shorter intensity stuff last year to to top up on those skills and especially after the Cape Epic where I felt like a little bit of a diesel engine and was was really suffering in cross-country races we had to kind of go back to doing shorter much higher intensity workouts but overall I think the plan has remained pretty consistent and it's just year after year being really diligent and, and layering in the work at every single level. Awesome. And 
as you were building up to the world championship and even across the board for the world cup season, how did you manage your expectations? Like when you lined up, were you lining up saying I'm going to win or I'm like racing to win or are you lining up mentally saying I'm lining up to get on the podium? Like where's your head throughout the season and did it evolve over time? I definitely did not line up for world championships racing to win. I think by that point I had gotten to a much like healthier headspace about the elite racing. I think at the beginning of the year, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm on the U23 podium. Like I'm winning those races. I can be on the elite podium. And it was hard. Like it's so competitive and I didn't get on the podium the entire year. And so I think my mindset shifted to being focused again, more on my own performance and learning something and improving something in my performance at every race and believing that if I go out really hard, like eventually I will be able to stay there and that I kind of treated it as like learning what it takes to be at the front. So like every race I took away some kind of learning, but I became less fixated on results and was more focused on like where I was as an athlete and being consistently trying to improve from there. So a lot of my races were those top 10 kind of goals and I was able to be really consistent there. And by world, I was feeling really fit. I was really well prepared for that race. But my goal was still to be in the top 10. And I think I had I had three levels of goals. I had my bronze level, which was be in the top 10, which is basically like consistent. You're consistent with how you've been performing. It's something you know you can do. You should be able to do it. If you have a solid race, you should be in the top 10. And then my silver level was that next kind of little bit of a reach goal. Like I really, I think my sights were really set on the top five in that race. And that would have been my best placing of the year. And and that was something that I was really believed I could do and was focused on. And then the goal, like super reach goal was to be on the podium and to win a medal. So that gives you some perspective on, on what I was aiming for. But I think it was also really important that I didn't have huge expectations and didn't think a lot about the placing. I was just thinking about having the best performance I could have. So in doing that, I never counted myself out. So I never was saying like, you can't win. I was just saying, wow, okay, like, let's really go for that top five. And then just focus completely on the performance and the preparation. And I wanted to ask about just because I've never raced a World Cup, and I don't really know a ton about cross country strategy. So like, you said at the interview at the end of the world championship was that you just stuck to your race plan and your goal was to execute your race plan. So what was your race plan? And also from a, a food, like an eating and drinking perspective, yeah. I noticed like people just don't even have a water bottle on their bike and they like take a few sips in the feed area and just throw the bottle. And I actually don't even see people eating gels or anything like that. So can you talk about both of those things? Absolutely. So race plan. Yeah. My race plan definitely includes, includes my mental strategy, my, physical goals, my strategy in terms of tactics in the race, and then also eating and drinking. So it comes down to a lot of things that I've studied during the week and and really prepared leading up to it. And luckily, I also have a really incredible team around me and that helps me develop all those different strategies. But I think my main goal for Lentade was to have really consistent laps. And I think that's one of those courses that's really physical. It has that two minute climb at the beginning, but then the rest of it is really technical and pedally. So it's not the most technical course in terms of a downhill, but it is one of the more technical courses in terms of you're constantly going over something bumpy and it requires not only 
technical ability, but power to get over it. So I actually was surprised that I had such a strong performance there, given that I'm not as much of a power rider. I, I would say I have stronger technical ability, but the ability to like really power over those roots was something that I've worked on a lot and, and hasn't been a strength of mine in the past. So my goal was to not blow myself up, <laughs> truly. And I trained in those kind of two-minute increments all year with that race in mind and knew really what I was capable of and when I went into the red zone. And I saw again and again in workouts that if I did, you know, 10 watts more, then my last interval would drop way down. But if I kept it within that range and I didn't go quite like as hard, granted, like I don't want to say that because I'm going as hard as I can. But if I go like 10 watts lower, I can do them all at a consistent power. And I think I'd learned that just doing that workout over and over again, that I can really get the most out of myself by staying right within that limit and pushing it, pushing as hard as I can, but not just sprinting those two minutes, because you see a lot of people fade in this race in particular. So that was really a big part of the strategy there. And we obviously kind of melded my mental strategies and my little goals within the race around that. And also with nutrition, I think eating early in this race was really important given how physical it is and how long the race was going to be. So I didn't have a bottle cage on my bike, but was taking feeds and had nutrition in bottles that I was taking. Okay. And you mentioned uh, your, your mental strategies. Can you share what those were leading into this? Yeah, I think it sounds like much cooler than they actually end up being <laughs> like, ooh, the mental strategy. But really, those are just those little incremental goals. So having a goal for the first lap for the first part of the first lap. And I think a lot of times I put together kind of my like mental goals and my visualization. So knowing exactly what line I'm going to take, knowing kind of where the course is split up in terms of, okay, this part is a part where I'm going to like dig in really hard and do this or this part is a part where I can recover, but it's really important to be focused in this way. So those mental goals, I think were just like splitting up the race and being really focused throughout. And then of course, there's the bigger goal setting of kind of results and other performance things that we've been working on throughout the year. And for the people that haven't seen it, and we'll put a link in the show notes to it so you can watch the entire race. Can you kind of walk us through what happened in the race? And then I want to pick apart kind of the end of it, but I don't want to like all of a sudden start at the end when people don't even know what happened at the beginning. Yeah. So, so world, it was, I actually went back and watched it with my parents in like October. I've only seen it once, but I think my dad has probably driven up the uh, Red Bull TV. (laughs) He watches it like, I think once a week at least still, but yeah, the beginning of the race, it's always really hectic at the start. My goal is to be top three into the single track. And I think I was second, third. I was in the front group. Um, so all of that ends up being a little bit of a blur. But yeah, I rode in that front group for a while and actually was in third for most of the race behind Emily Batty and Annika Langval, my teammate. And then was able to catch Emily, I think, on the third lap possibly. Uh, Yeah, halfway through the race, we'll say. Caught Emily moved into the silver position and was having really consistent lap times, was feeling really strong. And I think Annika made a few mistakes. And all of a sudden, I look up and I'm, I remember going under the banner 
going into the second to last lap and it was seven seconds. And I was like, okay, like that's actually, that's not 30 seconds. Seven seconds is, you know, I'm going to see her in a second and was able to bridge the gap up and we entered the last lap together. Yeah. And that's so crazy to have it come down to the last lap because she appeared to like ride away from everybody. And then even the last lap itself was really exciting. And you mentioned how amazing the women's race field is. And I actually think that, and I might be biased, but I really think that watching the women's World Cup racing is way more fun and exciting than watching the men's. But you guys, and I want to talk about that in a minute. So you went into the last lap together and like, this is your teammate. This is somebody that you rate that you won the Cape Epic with. So you guys probably know each other on a level. Like I know personally, when you do a stage race with somebody, like you kind of know more about them mentally and physically and what they're capable of. So like, did that relationship have any type of thing where you're like, I know that she's going to struggle here or that she's going to be better here. Or was that even not even in your head? I think in some ways, yes. I think you just get to know the riding style of your teammate really well. So I know that when Annika gets out of the saddle, it's going to be a tough time for me. Um, so that was, of course, expected when we got to the big, long pavement climb. And she's just such a powerful rider. And I remember at the Cape Epic having to have a chat with her about sprinting out of corners. Like I kept getting dropped out of these corners and like could not catch up because she would get a few pedals out of the saddle. And she's so incredibly powerful. So that was something I for, for sure knew to expect, but also of course had to play my cards to the best of my ability. And I think in that moment had to decide to stay within myself a bit more. So she got out of the saddle and I said, Ooh, this, mm, that's going to be, if I do that, I can do that for 30 seconds. And then if she drops me, there's no, like, there's nothing I can do. Like I will blow up for sure. So that strategy was not going to work. Instead, I let her go and was just really focused on trying to kind of stay in my pace and just keep moving up this hill. Of course, if you've seen the pictures of my face at this moment, I'm <laughs> dying. But knew like at that point that I was probably riding for a silver medal, but that anything could happen. And so I just kind of tried to stay on my pace and stay on the gas as much as possible. Yeah. For me, this is a really interesting thing because you said that you thought anything was possible, but you thought you were going for the silver medal. But as a competitive, like crazy competitive person, there had to be that fire of like, I got to get this. I got to I got to win this. And it takes such an amazing amount of discipline on that climb to hold back and let a gap open after you work so hard to close it. Like most people cannot let that gap open and just say, I'm just going to sit back here. I guess those are more comments than, yeah. than questions. I don't know if it was but... a, a choice as much. <laughs> if I could have just gone way harder, I, I definitely would have done that as well. But no, I think at that point, like I knew where I was in terms of my capabilities as a climber and as a rider. And, and honestly, like was just taking it as it came and, and made the best decisions that I could with what I had in the moment. And mm -hmm. I didn't have the power to go with her on that move. And I knew that. And so mm -hmm. rather than trying and just blowing up, I was like, okay, at least I can finish this race really strong and like be at this pace. And if anything happens, like I'm here, I'm still pushing. I think in hindsight, what I didn't recognize was that there's also a huge risk to overcooking yourself on that climb because of how much technical power riding there is after. And that's something I knew probably intuitively just from watching so much of the course tape and seeing how this race has played out in the past. 
but it wasn't something like I would have never imagined that happening. I didn't think, oh, Annika's going to make a mistake. Like that never went through my mind. I just was focused on, okay, well, I'm going to get to the top of the hill as fast as I can get to the top of the hill, but I know I'm going to need some reserves to finish this lap. I'm still in the place for a silver medal. Like if something happens, I'm right here. And I really want that silver medal at the very least. And so I think now in hindsight, that decision ended up being really smart because I had the power left in the second half of the race where it counted most. Yeah. And for me, I I personally, as an endurance athlete, where it's kind of the phenomena where you don't really see people for a really long time and you rarely have the experience where you're coming down to the last possible minute of this race on somebody else's tire or having somebody right next to you. So whenever you were in that situation, when you guys were riding right next to each other, were you thinking like, oh my God, like, when am I supposed to go? Or should I go now? Like, how did you play through that scenario and knowing what to do? Yeah. Like before the last time. Yeah. Yeah. I think honestly, at that point, like I knew Annika was so strong. Like she had had such a strong performance that day. And it was one of those situations where I kind of knew the onus was on her to make the move and drop me and mm. for me to stay on as long as I could at that point. And I think it's also clear on this course, like that first climb is really the spot where it all happens. And so I was prepared for a big attack there, which ended up happening and maybe not going the way I hoped it would in the moment, but working out in the long run. Hmm. Yeah. And something that was really apparent by watching it was and this is just a comment that the announcers make about Annika is that she's just not at the same level as the top person in technical riding. And it would be hard if I was Annika, it'd be, it'd be hard to hear that. And I feel even bad, like saying it, but it was apparent in the race that she was taking the B lines and like you and Emily Batty were taking the A lines and there is a risk for taking the A lines as well, but you were clearly getting more time by riding the more technical sections of that course and in the end, she ended up bobbling and like, you probably weren't expecting to see her again. And the announcers were like, oh, like Kate Gorney blew up and Annika's gone. And they thought that that was it. And then all of a sudden there she is. So like, were you surprised to see her? Yeah, I was definitely surprised to see her. I think I was surprised I recovered really well in that descent. I think partially because I didn't go quite like I didn't go outside myself on that first climb and kind of was coming around and was like, man, I'm feeling really good. And then I look up and Annika had clipped out in one of the more tactical sections. And actually it looks like I like put in an attack in that moment, but I was really just like trying to get by before she <laughs> moved over and, and it was impossible to pass by. So I, I kind of like took that little shot and then found myself in the lead. And I think in this moment, people have asked me a lot of times about how, what was going through my mind in this moment? What was the strategy here? What was the goal? And really, I think it was way more stressful to be a spectator of this moment than to be me because for me it was like each little incremental thing became my focus and I had no idea how close she was behind me I was just focused on okay I really you know I passed her I really have to ride this next technical there's the next like technical corner I was like I really can't clip out on this corner and then it became okay really this fire road is open like I really need to make sure I don't get past here Okay. And then going into each line I was taking in the tagging section. And of course, one of my goals on the last lap was to really nail that A line. And for me, the mantra of that whole last lap was like, you have half a lap to be the absolute best rider you can be and to put in the best performance you can do, have. 
And if you can do that, then you deserve to be the best on the day. And if you can't, then you don't deserve it. So what do I need to do to be the best rider I can be right now? And I knew that meant like nailing the A line and crushing all the lines that I practiced and really executing my race plan to the best of my ability and hoping that that was enough to be the best on the day. Yeah. And I also like think that that's really amazing because it's really hard to start wishing for that finish line, especially if you're winning and you're where you want to be. You're like, I just want to be done. I just want that. Where is that finish line? And starting to think like that can actually mess you up for what you're doing to get to the finish line. But it's hard to actually execute that. Yeah, it's really difficult. And on the other hand, like I didn't want it to be over. Like it was such a cool experience. I'm riding in the lead in a world championship race in front of one of the biggest crowds of mountain bike fans we've ever had. So I think it was about really being in that moment and thinking about it in that moment and not taking the next step of, Oh, I'm like, what if I get the world championship and not making it a bigger thing? I just really stayed in the moment. And I'm glad that I was able to do that because it was a really special, you know, six minutes until the end of the race. I think that's amazing that you're able to do that. Like, it's really, really cool. It was a pretty special moment. <laughs> and another thing that I really love about like you winning the world championship is probably my favorite thing that happened last year because people weren't expecting it. Like even in the commentary before the event, like they weren't even like mentioning you. And I love the story of somebody that just like comes out, like put in the work all year, maybe wasn't in like the number one limelight and then just does the work and gets it done. And I think it takes an incredible growth mindset to not set that limit on yourself, to not build a ceiling over your head and say, well, I haven't actually made it on the podium, therefore I can't win a World Cup or win a yeah. World Championship, I mean. Well, thank you, first of all. But yeah, I think it was really is an exciting moment for me and step in my career. And I definitely do thrive off being the underdog a lot of the time. But I think also it's the right step for me kind of mentally this year to take that and really want to be consistently at the front. You know, I wasn't mentioned in the pre-race spiel because I wasn't consistently at the front last year and I was a consistent top 10 rider. And so to really have kind of an indicator that I can make it to the front, but also a lot of work left to do is a really exciting place for me to be as an athlete. And it's really motivating for me to try to you know, set my sights on being consistently in that top five or consistently on that podium as I move forward. How long did it take for it to sink in that you actually won? Like, was it, was it days, like weeks? (laughs) It was a little, so I actually did the marathon world championships the next weekend, which is a little bit more in your wheelhouse in terms of distance. It was a really, really, really brutal experience and certainly very humbling, especially after such a big high on the cross country side of things so for me after that race ended I kind of like was done with the season and had a moment to go on vacation and we went to Italy and I actually hadn't worn the rainbow jersey that whole week because I was at a marathon event and I didn't want to wear it in training I was like okay I'm wearing my normal kit I'm at a marathon event like I need to do my job and so we went to Italy and my first ride in rainbow jerseys was on Stelvio and we climbed Stelvio (laughs) And ate gummy bears. And I just like halfway up just started bawling. And I feel like that was one of the biggest kind of moments of letting it sink in and just realizing that, you know, it was a huge thing for me, but also just for the American cycling community. Like, how cool is it that I'm going to get to bring these rainbow stripes back to America, back to a place that, you know, has such a long history with mountain biking and that has done so much to foster 
the love of the sport for me, but also for so many people across the country. And that was a really impactful moment. That's so important for us as a country because there are, like, if you look at the top women, especially women, like most of them are from North America. Like, yeah. it's pretty badass how awesome, how awesome the women are. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the ladies are holding it down. And you wrote an article for Outside Magazine about winning the world championship and how you think things are kind of shifting and how great it is for women to be an example for men. Can you talk more about that article and what inspired that? Yeah, that was something that I thought about for a long time and wasn't sure exactly how to speak on, but it's something that's really important to me. And I think to female athletes across all sports, but especially in cycling, which as I mentioned in the article is a sport that in a lot of ways has achieved huge progress and a lot of parity in terms of, especially mountain biking, we have equal prize money. We race on the same courses. We race for about the same amount of time, even if we race less laps, like it's similar in a lot of ways. We both have streaming on Red Bull TV, but there's still these kind of more subtle forms of inequality that persist and that make women feel either less valued or less comfortable as athletes. And one of those things for me has always been like interactions with young, like male riders or male fans who always would comment on my appearance, or like yell marriage proposals or, or just not focus on what they should be focusing on, which is that I'm crushing it on my bike. And I think after the world championships and even at nationals this year, I started to see such a shift in especially those young boys, but also in young girls and dads just being like, wow, we really respect what you're doing as a cyclist or like, how do you ride this technical line? Like, wow, that's really amazing to see you do this or that. And seeing it as a role model, as a cyclist, not just as a female cyclist or, oh, that's good that you can do that for a girl. You should like, you can mentor other girls, but seeing it more as, you know, a participant in sports in general and really celebrating the things that we love about sports, not just that we love about the men's side of the sport. I think that's such a great example too for everybody else. And I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do. And there are women that prefer to make it about being like a bike model and you know, that's fine for them and whatever, but I think it's better for the sport when people can show that they're an athlete and they're just an athlete period. And mm -hmm. if you happen to be attractive or strong or whatever, make it about being strong, make it about how you're using your body to achieve the sport. And there is pressure, like as a female, I mean, you see it a lot in other sports too, to like portray the sexy side of things. And like, I felt that pressure myself, but I think it's at the end of the day, like, what do you want to be remembered for? And again, some people do want to be remembered for like being attractive and some people want to be known for like being a badass athlete. And I think you can be known for both, but I think it's really cool that you put that out there. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's something, you know, just I was talking to someone at the Women's Sport Foundation and they do so much in terms of helping control the kind of conversation about women in sports and really empowering women to use their own voices. And that's something that I think is a really cool thing in our current state is that as athletes, we do have our own voices through social media, through these interviews, and we don't always have to go through publication to get a message out or to share our voice. And as you said, like women, you can't generalize. People want to be represented in all different types of ways and talked about in all different types of ways. And I think there's room for everyone to be their unique self. And I think now with athletes having their own voice, that's so much more accessible 
and you can get a lot of that nuance across. And for me personally, I feel like that's been huge in terms of my little like sparkle hashtag is so silly. But for me, that means that I can be a badass bike racer and also be girly, but I don't have to just be girly. Like I can have some elements that are feminine and girly and I can wear makeup if I feel like it or not if I feel like it. And, you know, having the freedom and the voice to let my personality be what it is and not have to fit into one box or another. And I hope that we're continuing to move towards that for all female athletes and male athletes that they can express the many different parts of what makes them really great athletes, but also really unique people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I know that I've experienced this too. You feel like if I show a girly side of me, then I'm not going to be taken as seriously or people aren't going to think I'm tough or people aren't going to think that I'm a top athlete if I want to wear mascara or if I cry or all these things. And then you have, and again, everybody's got to do what they're going to do, what's best for them. But you'll, I think you see a lot more women trying to be more manly, I guess is, I don't know the right way to say it, but women who wouldn't wear makeup, women who would only have short hair. Like I noticed a lot more of those whenever I was first getting into the sport. And now it just seems like women can be whatever shape form they want to be and express their femininity in any way that they choose to wear and still be taken seriously. Yeah. And I think that diversity really helps our sport. You know, I think that it's a part of the evolution of women in sport and just being able to be a safe, open place. And uh, hopefully we'll see more of it in the future. Yeah, I think it's cool that people can just like come as you are. And no matter what you are, you can be taken seriously as an athlete. Absolutely. Cool. So I want to ask about your Instagram handle, because it's Kate, Kate plus fate, if people haven't followed you yet, and they should and it's been like, your account is awesome. Like it's so authentic. It's so true to you. And I think that's amazing. But where did that name come from? So hilariously enough, it actually came from about six years ago. I rode a hardtail called the Fate. It was a specialized Fate. And so it was Kate plus Fate, which also was at the time when John and Kate plus Fate was a show. So it was kind of a joke on that as well. But this was so long ago that no one remembers either of those references. <laughs> so I've considered changing it. But I think now people have, I changed it once to Kate Courtney and it was not well received. Because Why? I think people like really liked the Kate plus fate name and they thought of it more as like chasing your fate. Like Kate, like what's going to happen? Like follow the journey Kate plus fate, which I had never thought of, but then I kind of liked. So I've left it as that for now, but I'm definitely long-term like will consider changing it. So if anyone has any ideas can shoot it my way. All right. And I want to ask about your new team, which is super yeah. exciting. So how did that come about and how has it been a positive change for you? Yeah, I cannot say enough good things about my team. I'm so incredibly excited to join the Scott's Room family and to have not only the most amazing teammates and team director in the world, but having access to new equipment and equipment testing and just kind of a whole new experience in terms of support and camaraderie and working towards being the best in the world. So I think the team has this amazing experience, but also atmosphere that is just a great place for me to go and learn. And so far, it's been great. We went to team camp and 
we're doing a lot of product testing and really getting things dialed in, which has been a huge positive for me, just being able to learn and work with engineers who are designing things to actually understand how everything works on my bike and be able to give really good feedback. Especially for me, I think I'm a smaller rider. I have little hands and and I'm also a female rider. So my feedback actually can be really helpful. And I think they've taken a lot of time to really educate me on things so that I can understand and let them know what's working for me and how things can work better. And I think that petite women's voices have been left out of a lot of product design in the past because of that, especially with suspension and shifting and reaching for brakes and all of those little nuances where weight and the size of your hands make a big difference. They've really given me an opportunity to dial things in, which I'm super excited about. Awesome. And how has being on the new team, if anything, changed your perspective of the upcoming year or changed kind of the vibe at the race or what you think the vibe at the race will be because you're with your team a lot. And I think that that yeah. affects the, like how you feel and how you perceive things. Completely. Yeah. I think this team has a really great environment and I'm really looking forward to being able to learn from them throughout the year. I think being the only woman on the team actually is kind of a cool thing for me. It's really humbling because I can tell you firsthand, those boys are very fast. And I've gotten dropped very quickly on the sense, but it really, it makes me excited to learn and they all operate really as a unit. They train a lot together. We did a lot of circuit gym workouts together. We would head out on easy rides together, even head out on intervals together. Of course, I'm not doing the training the boys are doing, but we (laughs) can make it work on some days and they're always really willing to do things to kind of maintain that team atmosphere. So for me, that's a really special addition and I think going into the season I'm hoping just to like really learn from that and I think that by the time I get around to racing I will hopefully be able to feel a little better after riding with boys for so long it'll be nice to remember that I don't have to race them It's a really good point. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask about your shark spirit animal although spirit. I think that you might be the shark spirit animal but like how did that come about? <laughs> I don't know really like how it initially started. I'm obsessed with sharks. So honestly, this might be like, I just like want it to be the shark because I love sharks. Yeah, we my love for sharks actually hilariously enough started in Montsainan when I raced there as a junior in the World Cups because we had no internet and no cell service and we had cable TV. And for some reason, it was like August every year would be Montsainan and it would always be during Shark Week. So for a full week, we would be there racing the World Cup and you do course practice for like an hour and a half. We're juniors. We're not riding that much. You get your massage. You know, there's a lot of hours left in the day. And Shark Week was the answer. So so that's the beginning of my love for sharks. But I think I'm also just a huge nerd and have loved learning about them and see a lot of good parallels with racing that sharks are, one, they can't stop moving they like have to keep moving or they die two they're always hungry so already resonating a lot and three is i feel like sharks are pretty calm and chill they're like cruising around the ocean but then they have an attack mode and when that's on it's on so i feel like that's how i approach racing in a lot of ways (laughs) maybe this shark thing has to play into your instagram name (laughs) i know i mean that's a good there you go about it so you, you do a lot of gym work and that's really inspiring. I know to a lot of people, 
someone from my Patreon, Davy Boy, asks, if you had only one training exercise okay. in the gym, what would it be? Ooh, that's only one? Can I pick like one for each part of your body? <laughs> yeah, you can, because I think you'll give a, you'll give us all a bunch of ideas on what we can do. <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, I really like, I mean, I do deadlifts. That's a good leg one. Actually, you know, if I had to pick one, it would probably be like a box, like step ups onto a box with one leg. And you can vary that in so many ways. You can step up onto the box, you can step up with weight, you can jump up with one leg, you can really vary it to target like a specific power kind of part of your curve or a specific muscle in your leg. So that one I think is really good for me. Upper body, I think pull ups are really good. I kind of hate them but they're really great for grip strength and also just for like overall upper body strength. And they're really hard. So I think when we do stuff that's really hard in the gym, it can be motivating to, you know, want to be able to do more than a few of them. And that's something that I focused on a lot in the past. And then my final one is just core. And I don't know if I can pick a favorite core. I think a lot of the like balance board core stuff has been really great for me. It's engaging and it targets a lot of things at once. So like the weight flipping, it's grip strength. It's your like, forearm little strength it's coordination it's balance it's core strength so finding fun ways to play around and really incorporate a lot of different things that you're targeting at once can give you a lot of bang for your buck in the gym have you dropped the weight like while you're like on and hurt like dropped it on yourself while you're like throwing it i was like that looks like that looks dangerous (laughs) no not on myself my biggest casualty in the gym this year was i fell on some stairs and hit my shin but other than that i've been a-okay is that when you're (laughs) jumping up the stairs because i noticed you just posted a video where you're like jumping up four stairs at once i finally got it i honestly i was so excited (laughs) about that i've been working on the four stair jump for a while and there's certainly a mental component of that as well because like doing double four stairs it's like you just really feel like you're gonna fall on your face but I was able to do it. And that was an exciting little piece of progress. It's like hitting a new power number. (laughs) And like, how do you divide up plyometric type workouts with like actual lifting weights? Yeah, so a lot of the plyo stuff is part of my warm up. And I actually do a lot of like kind of PT mobilization, injury prevention stuff. It's all like grouped into my gym workout. And that's partially just because it's how I work best. I'd rather do a 45 minute warm up in the gym than try to add in PT exercises on another day and maybe forget to do them or, or not have the right equipment. So it's become just a really focused time for me. And yeah, so it all kind of gets lumped into that same workout, but um, organized however it needs to be to maximize my main weight set. Cool. And I just have a couple more questions for you. One of them is about equipment. And I noticed like on the World Cup, it's like people are on hardtails, people are on full suspensions, people have dropper posts, people don't have dropper posts. How do you decide what to use? And I know it's course dependent, Uh but like there's like a weight penalty, but then there's also like you go faster on the downhill, use less energy when you have a dropper. And then also like tire choice. If you pick a tire that's too light, you can risk flats. And I've seen a lot of flats happening. So how do you pick what you're going to use? It definitely is course dependent. So for me, I will have both options at the race and then I decide typically unless I've raced the course a bunch of times and know ahead of time what I'm likely to choose. But even course conditions can change. So even just having it rain really, really hard, all of a sudden I want to drop or post at Mont Saint-Anne when maybe I didn't feel like I needed it before. So 
it can change and be dependent on the courses. But overall, I think the full suspension has become more and more popular as a choice. And partially that's because they're just getting so light and they work so well. For me, the hardtail with a dropper post has actually been a great option for some of the races because the hardtail is really, really light, but the dropper post gives me some of the ability to kind of push those downhills. And also for me as a lighter rider, the weight penalty of switching to a full suspension can be a bit bigger. But at the end of the day, like I really think it's about what I'm most comfortable on and testing it and having a really good conversation about it and knowing my equipment and what might be the right thing. And that's another place where I'm really excited to be on the Scott's Ram team because Frishy, our team director, has so much experience racing and also in being the team manager for quite a few years. He is really helpful in terms of, you know, directing me on tire choice and pressure and suspension pressure and and just all these things that for me as an athlete, I've tested, but sometimes struggle to decide between having someone that's knowledgeable and knows their stuff give me a little bit of advice can can go a long way. And I can say from personal experience that Spark is a pretty awesome bike. There we go. <laughs> it really is. It really is awesome. And I wanted to ask about your dad because he's in a lot of your like ride photos and it's so, so cool how involved and supportive your family is and not everybody has that. So like how big of a role does your dad play and your mom and your support and on the day to day? Oh, my parents are awesome. I won the parent lottery, so I can just say that to start with, but yeah, they live close by. So they're about an hour away from me. Um, They're up in Marin and they're super helpful from everything from managing travel logistics and race schedules and just helping me make really tough decisions that come up throughout the season to pack my bikes and riding with me. They've done so, so much to support me. I think on a positive note, I have amazing team support. And after graduating college, I have a lot more time. So I think, you know, I am covered in a lot more ways. And that's really exciting because it means that there's more time for my parents to just be involved in the fun part. And so now I think they really, they love coming to some of the races. My dad loves to train with me, which of course I love too, but it's now more something that we get to share rather than them having to like put out fires and drive bikes to airports while I'm in class and, and really like just, you know, make it happen for me. Now they can really trust that I'm supported, but be involved in the ways that are really fun and and cool for us to share. Awesome. And what is your favorite taco? My favorite taco in the whole world. Yep. Honestly, my favorite taco is the taco that's in front of me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I'm, partial to post mountain bike ride tacos nearby at Sancho's. I did go against everything I believe in and order burrito bowl the other day and it was pretty good. So I'm having a crisis, but, but yeah, I, I love trying new things. And I think one of the best things about tacos for me is that being a gluten-free, I've been gluten-free for seven years now. So that part of it makes it really easy to get food when I'm traveling and I know I can get a corn tortilla and whatever great delicious things they put in it. So it's been a huge part of getting reliable food on the road, but also it's delicious. And do you, do you like monitor your calories really closely? Cause I know, especially for world cup, like being light and having that strength to weight ratio is super important. 
Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a big, like the nutrition part of it, I feel like it's a big thing. And I've, I've written articles on this too. I think I operate in a 95 to 5% zone during the off season. And that my strength coach actually was talking about this because you can't be a hundred percent perfect all year round. Like you will not be happy. You will not be able to train as hard if you're never going to have a cookie for the whole year. Like it's unrealistic. And in my opinion, unhealthy. So during a lot of the year, it's about like getting enough calories, really fueling my body for what I'm doing. And, you know, people see me like eating these cookies or like on a ride, having a pastry. And typically those rides are about five and a half hours. So if you're going to ride five and a half hours, like eat a cookie and be excited to stop at the bakery. Like those are all awesome sources of motivation. And for me, that's the 95, five, 95% of what I eat is like, really healthy, whole foods, super nutritious, and like really geared towards performance. And then the 5% is the cookie that I stop and get on my ride because it makes me excited to ride my bike. Like if I'm going to this bakery and that, I think it's worth having that to have a better quality of life and have flexibility. And then there is a part of the season where I go to like a hundred. And of course I'm like really monitoring things and paying close attention and and that's peaking for big races. And that only works if it's for a short period of time at the end of the year. And of course, that's usually for world championships. And then we get to take the off season. So <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I highly suggest people should listen to our other episode we recorded. Well, like, I guess it's been about over a year ago. Crazy. Yeah. So where's the best place for people to get in touch with you if they have questions or they just want to keep following your awesome journey? I think either Instagram or my emails on my Instagram and my emails on my website. So it's kcorney.com or at kplusfaith. And I am, try to be pretty good about responding. So if I don't answer the first time, just do it again and I'll, I'll get back to you. Cool. Thanks and good luck. It's going to be really fun to watch you this year. Thank you so much. It's good to catch up. When I talk to Kate, it always feels like I'm talking to an old friend. And I think that she's so awesome. And you should definitely follow her on social media. And she also writes some great articles. She wrote one recently for Outside Magazine, as we mentioned, and also for Cycling Tips. So make sure that you check those out as well. And once again, if you're enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You open up the podcast app and type in my name and you can just leave five stars. You can leave a comment. I read them all and I really appreciate it. So thanks so much, you guys. I hope your training is going well and things are off to a great start for you. I'm racing the 24 hours of Old Pueblo next weekend with Gordon Wadsworth. So that's going to be awesome. It's also going to be really hard. The hardest thing about racing duo for 24 hours is that you don't get to really rest. Like you're not actually pedaling for 24 hours, but I think that actually makes it harder because the laps are between an hour to maybe an hour and 15 minutes. So by the time you stop, get back to your pit, eat something and think about going back out there again, there's been barely enough time to get any type of recovery, which means no sleeping. So I actually think that 24 hour solos are easier than duo. And I'm a little bit anxious about the discomfort. And I've been trying to reframe that in my mind as something to look forward to because it's actually kind of rare anymore whenever I get intimidated by the races I'm signing up for. So I'm looking at it as an exciting thing that I get to overcome and knowing that it's going to be way worse in my mind than it actually is going to be in reality. 
I'm also excited for the challenge. And I think that that's something that's important for us to think about is whenever something seems like it's going to be hard or maybe we're even dreading it, trying to change it into being excited about getting to the challenge, getting to know yourself better, getting to just do a better job than you did last time. And you don't have to like it, but it can definitely help in the processing of whatever is coming up. That's it for this week's show. Thanks so much again, you guys, for listening. It's so awesome to have this podcast and have such a meaningful community of people who are listening and contributing in both ways. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you back here next week. Bye.